Welcome to the Fast Forward Podcast, a series dedicated to answering the issues that keep entrepreneurs awake at night. I'm your host, Patricia Keating. Every entrepreneur at one stage or another experiences that feeling that they're just simply not qualified to run their own business. That feeling can sometimes be described and is commonly known in the media as imposter syndrome. But we really want to break that down. So we've brought someone in today who um, is an expert in many, many things, but has some very strong and potentially controversial opinions about this very subject, which I also agree with. And we wanted to discuss them today. Here today is CEO of Swisscott Group and General Manchester amazing entrepreneur, Vikas Shaw. Hi, lovely to be here. Thank (laughs) Thank you for having me. Because um, many people will be familiar with your Thought Economics blog, which I thoroughly enjoy reading uh, and learn a lot from. And they may have seen you in quite a few media, not, not, uh, not less so the uh, newspapers on the BBC Breakfast sofa yeah. uh, several mornings um, over the course of a month. But for those that aren't so familiar with you, um, could you give us a brief overview of your business journey and experience? Yeah, so um, like many people in business, it was kind of accidental. So the aim was to be an airline pilot many years ago and um that was a really expensive thing to try and do so i started doing a bit of freelancing this is when i was a kid so i was like 13 14 doing bits of freelance freelancing and web development and then that went rogue so i was 16 i had a company with offices in manchester london new york and sydney um the company was growing really well you know we had the dot com bubble at the time which was great for us and you know, that company ceased when the bubble burst in the kind of early 90s. And so I had to sell the bits I could as fast as I can to pay for the bits I couldn't and start again. And then built a textiles and commodities trading business, um, launched a sort of small investment fund. And also at that point committed to spend at least half of my life, I guess, on on non-profit and more kind of civic things, because ultimately that, that's the kind of stuff that, that that matters and really makes a difference. So you were running a multinational web development agency at the age of what? Like 16. Okay, so I think imposter syndrome might have been something that perhaps might have been happening to you very, very early in your career. Um, y- yes and no. Or would you, is it when you're that young and crazy you don't even know? <laughs> so. Do you know, it's not even about being crazy, it's about being naive. Yeah. Because, you know, you, you get asked the question in retrospect of, oh, it wasn't a bit weird as a kid going into all these meetings. And the thing is, at the time, it's not, because you don't know anything. Mm. You know, you're a kid. Everything's just one big adventure. You yeah, don't, you, you everything's don't, new. You don't realise if something is good or not, or you should or shouldn't be doing something. So so at the time, no, I didn't have, I didn't have what I could describe as imposter syndrome because I hadn't been sufficiently jaded by real life to to get to that point, I guess. Mm. So let's actually start at the very beginning, yeah. uh, this this. Um, phrase is, is bandied about. Um, we hear it all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, celebrities, high-level mm. politicians, they all confess to have suffered from it from one time or another. Um, it's Essentially, it's a very intense um, feeling of self-doubt, but could you just explain for the listeners um, exactly what is imposter syndrome? So I'll caveat this by the fact that I'm, you know, I'm not a psychologist. It's kind of more, I guess, experience-based. Mm. <laughs> but for me... It's, it's really that sense that either you don't deserve to be in a certain place or position or or perhaps that you're going to be found out because of that. It's It was once described to me quite well as 
it's where the weight of expectations on your shoulders doesn't meet your ability to carry them. And I've, I've always thought that's kind of a really nice way of looking at it because depending on your role, and it doesn't kind of matter what you do now, but there's always this massive weight of expectations for how you project your role to the outside world. You know, how, how busy is your LinkedIn profile? How many things are you doing? How many boards do you sit on? How much stuff are you involved in? How mm. do you project this sense of success? And that reflects back on how people talk about you. And so there's this big weight of expectations that goes on your shoulders. And either you have to be resilient enough to carry that weight or you'll realize that, oh, God, it's going to fall at some point. Yeah, it's almost like a, a there's a competitive nature to that in some extent where you read somebody else's profile and you're like, God, I need to be doing there, there to be is. more. And the problem is because because the way that profile's built now is so kind of, there's not really as, as much quality control because anyone can just say anything they want and, yeah. and it's perceived as fact. So I think a lot of that sense of competition is 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 rather false because it's it's based on things which just frankly aren't true but there's also this sense that the world is moving at such a pace that perhaps i'm being left behind mm. and that's also part of what constitutes this this imposter syndrome so i think imposter is a bit of a it, it, it's a good word to describe the sensation you have but perhaps it's more just a sense that the pace of change inside yourself doesn't necessarily meet the pace of change outside. Mm. So it's a sense that maybe I'm not keeping up, maybe I'm not right for this world. Um, I was reading in, in one of the articles uh, this week that there are actually different types mm-hmm. of imposter syndrome. Um, I don't know whether you have any thoughts on that. You, you, you feel imposter syndrome in different ways depending on the situation you're in. So it could be that you're talking at some great big conference and you just feel like a lemon on the stage because you're just like, you know, We've all this guy's, <laughs> you know, this, this, this guy next to me has done this and this lady next to me has done that. Like, what, what, you know, what am why I am I here? here? Like, yeah. what is, was I just literally the, they ran out of names to rip pick, so yeah. they were like, you know, call me. Or it might be, it might be the case that you, it's almost a sense of slight embarrassment where someone introduces you and you're like, wow, how am I going to live up to this bio that somebody's written? Mm. It manifests in so many different ways. It's, it's so sensitive to the mood you have at that day, the situation you're in at that time. It can be something as simple as someone saying thank you to you for something which you don't feel you deserve thanks for. Yeah. You know, I've seen situations where I've just, you know, like we all do, you'll see somebody maybe struggling to walk and you maybe give them a hand and they say thank you and you feel that slight sense of guilt like why are you saying thank you this, this mm. is not this doesn't deserve thanks um there is a in the article i read it was talking about sort of how different personality traits lend mm-hmm. itself to or or increase the likelihood that you might experience it in some way so people who are are perfectionists in what they do um, or have um, sort of more control tendencies in their personality or people who like to be perceived as an expert it's almost like they're they're embarrassed to admit, you know, if they don't know something or if something isn't quite right. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a sense that the pressures you put on yourself to conform to the standards you set for yourself yeah. can create imposter syndrome, where particularly if you're leading a business, for example, there's an expectation you have of yourself that I should have all the answers for everything in any given situation, which is not true. No one does. But the expectation you put on yourself to be that person creates an imposter syndrome where you at the chair of your own board meeting for your own business 
get asked a question and feel, mm. gosh, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be running a business. I shouldn't be in the hot seat doing this. Yeah. Um, but then on the flip side, you, you get this kind of sense of people with, you know, something which could almost be a pathology, you know, a bit, bit of a, you know, you, you see that kind of standard discussion around the boardroom psychopath. And it's a real, it's a real phenomenon. And these are people who feel that the exact opposite, if you like, of imposter syndrome, of this sense of entitlement. I deserve to be here. I will rule with an iron fist. It's that I know classic, everything. Yeah, it's that classic sort of, you know, Trumpian way of leading or mm. the kind of Alan Sugar-esque way of leading, which is, listen, I know everything. Yeah. You just do as I say, which is almost the opposite of, of the imposter syndrome, which is just as fascinating sometimes to examine. Yeah. And I think that's where you could possibly, you know, view it as a as a as a positive thing. And we'll go come back to this mm-hmm. in a little bit. But that, you know, having that a little bit of imposter syndrome allows you then to be open to listening mm-hmm. to other people's ideas and learning to help sort of For deal sure. with those things. Um, but in, imposter syndrome is uh, anyone can suffer from it. I think seventy five percent of us uh, frequently yeah. do, and I think it's something that does sort of undulate through your your life. Sometimes you feel it; uh, you have higher states states of it than others. If you've experienced it, you'll know what what we're talking about here. Um, you know, so but people like Albert Einstein have experienced it. Maya Angelou have experienced it, and I've talked openly mm. about it. So it's not uh, it's not gender specific. It can be it can be anyone at any time, right? I'd be I'd be more scared of someone who lives a life so safely that they don't experience imposter syndrome at some point. You know, it's it's almost a an unexpected side effect of stepping outside your own comfort zone to the extent mm. that. You know, I remember years ago, I did a load of, you know, quite difficult climbs and hikes and things. And you, you, you stood there on a mountain and, you know, you, there's not much oxygen and you get imposter syndrome. You're like, mm-hmm. wow, I have no idea what I'm doing. Why am I here? <laughs> and, and that's just the same as you might be yeah. swimming across a lake in a freezing cold conditions and going, the hell am I doing? Why am I here? I have no idea. I'm I not an explorer. So, so it's that, it's that sort of thing. So there's this sense that actually if, if you're doing things in life which require you to do things which you don't know or yeah. don't know well or, or outside your comfort zone, you probably will feel it. So I'd be more worried about people that don't feel imposter syndrome on at least slightly regular basis. Yeah, um, I'll remember that next next week when I'm swimming through my ice lake in Finland. I'll go, this is imposter syndrome. Exactly. <laughs> what am I exactly. doing here? Yeah. <laughs> Um, how debilitating can it be? Is it uh, is it manageable? Is it you know if you know? So so this this is where the resilience piece comes in. Um, you know we talk about having shoulders broad enough to carry the burden of expectations, right? So if we think about how debilitating imposter syndrome can be, it's a direct correlation to how resilient you're feeling at the time. Mm. I've done panels and breakfasts where I'm just having a bad day. And so the imposter syndrome just sits with you all day, like this cloud of, oh my God, you're a failure. Oh my God, when this article comes out, you're going to look like an absolute muppet, whatever. But the, the, the essence is on other days when you're feeling kind of good and you've had a good day and you've been to the gym and you're feeling good about yourself, it's fine. You brush it off and you, and you go, oh, oh well, you know, it's one of those things. So there's that correlation of depending on how resilient you are will determine your reaction and capacity to react to imposter syndrome and there's definitely um a gender component to it and a cultural component to it as well i feel can you explain about those a bit more so the gender component is quite interesting because it's not necessarily that 
you have a situation where genders may be more predisposed to it, but it's rather the outlet that you have within that within that group. So, you know, we know that women are far more open with their emotions in general with their friends. They will have more conversations about how they're feeling. And as part of that kind of palette of things to talk about, this is one of those, right? Whereas guys in general don't. There are exceptions, of course, but in general they don't. And so if you're feeling a certain way, instead of talking about it, you'll compensate. So you see a lot of guys who will feel that way and go, right, well, I have to prove myself, so I will prove my worth by buy a nicer car, buy a big shiny watch, do whatever it is, go to the gym more. So there's there's compensation behavior that you see very, very often in business. And, you know, all you need to do is go to a business networking event and you'll see lots and lots of people who are displaying all kind of compensation behaviors. Mm. And it's kind of funny when you see what it is. And when you see it for what it is, it's actually kind of hilarious. Whereas Sometimes you go to like, you know, really serious business events and there's a bunch of billionaires there and they just drive a Toyota Prius. They don't care. They literally have nothing to prove because they've got over that and realized there's way more to life and you kind of have to focus on really just doing things and not worry about that. Yeah. I think it's when you externalize, you know, that, that you said there about sort of feeling worthy and that sort of sense of self-worth, mm-hmm. if you attach that to external measures or mm-hmm. you know i you know i'm worthy or I, I i will feel better if i look like this well, type well, of person well think about the exact corollary if you like so so mm. for example if someone has imposter syndrome what's the kind of antidote to that so if we think about the kind of you have a snake bite and you have an antidote to the snake bite which is almost the opposite reaction if you think about it in that way so let's say i feel like an imposter because i don't feel worthy of being where i am well mm. actually the, the opposite is I will now prove my worth in a way that I can, which means whatever it might be for that individual car, house, big watch, whatever. So with any emotional reaction we have, sometimes what you see is the opposite behavior, the, that kind of antidote being displayed as the behavior mm-hmm. as opposed to what that individual's really feeling. And a great way to see this in action every day in a very David Attenborough way is Twitter. So if you go on Twitter, follow a bunch of business people, and you will see a full day's worth of these kind of bizarre behaviors about the latest thing they're humbled to have done or honored to have attended or the picture out of the window as they're going to Davos or whatever it might be. So it's just the way of behavior. I think that's a really interesting uh, point when you go back to saying about sort of what the actual core problem is. Mm. And if we take it back to entrepreneurs um, and them starting out in business, they feel those feelings because they've never run a business before and they're stretching themselves yeah. and all of that kind of thing. Um, so I think it's it, if you look at imposter syndrome, is almost that self-awareness that you need to have, that little bit of self-awareness about being aware of. Yeah. I feel vulnerable because I don't know how to market my business. So if you take imposter syndrome and all of that out of it and go, I don't know how to market something, exactly. what would you normally do? There's also, there's, there's two other things, actually. There's, there's, first of all, a sense of what, what, what are we using to measure success, right? Because in entrepreneurship, there's this really horrible slightly narcissistic sense that the only thing to measure success with is money so we have the rich lists which i think are just this the most disgusting tropes for how <laughs> one can measure a business right because a they're, they're 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 woefully inaccurate to start with and secondly what a pathetic way of measuring success because actually in the vast majority of cases 
when you meet these individuals who have made the billions and billions of pounds, yes, everyone's works hard, everyone works hard, but a lot of it is timing and luck. It's things that you can't engineer. Mm. So, so actually to measure people just on the amount of money they've made is, is actually kind of sad. And it compounds s- the problem, And it compounds it? a problem, sets a bad precedent. But the second yeah. part of it is this sort of sense of not being able to speak about failure or failings. So doctors used to get this quite a lot back in the day. So doctors used to not be able to talk about failures. They used to not be able to talk about things they didn't know. And as a result of that, patients died. And so because of that, you know, the law in medicine changed and training in medicine changed to the extent that people have continuous training, regardless of what you think, you know, um, but you also have these kind of failure meetings. So, so you talk about things that have gone wrong. You get a safe way to do that. So entrepreneurs don't. Entrepreneurs are expected to measure themselves on net worth, which, yeah. is, which is pretty sad. Um, they're expected to... Jobs created and jobs investment created. raised. They're expected to not Terrible fail. Measures. They're expected yeah. to not talk about failure. They're expected to not say, I don't know. Yeah. And these things are horrifically unhealthy and they really compound that problem of imposter syndrome. Because, for example, you could be sat at a roundtable, you might get invited to a cybersecurity roundtable, and you might be sat at the roundtable as an entrepreneur, and someone goes, so, person X, tell me all about, you know, hypermorphic encryption. And instead of saying, I have no idea what that is, you might feel obliged to say something, because our culture says you should have an answer. Hmm. Um your own entrepreneurial journey um you've touched briefly on some highs and lows and i know that you're very open about um sort of the mental well-being Mm. experience that you've been through um throughout your career do you think that perception and those conditions that have been placed on entrepreneurs as you grew up um and went through obviously you went through obviously a horrific time um you know with the dot-com bubble if you had offices all around the world you had staff all around the world which means you had to let them go and at such a such a young age, and going through that whole experience of, you know, a company failing, mm-hmm. um, and then in an environment where you're not allowed to talk about it, and you know, it's 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 perceived as a negative thing. Do you think any of that had an impact on on you? Uh, I think it'd be I'd be more worried about myself if it didn't. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's kind of you, yeah. you can't witness a plane crash and walk away like everything's fine. Yeah. Um, the really damaging part of it, though, was not what I expected there was a you know internally I thought okay I'm just going to feel really burnt by this and of course you do right I'm not going to sugarcoat it when what, your business what age were you when it all kind this of, fell kind of down? just coming up to my 20s okay. and of course you're going to feel burnt you know but that's just normal but the the thing that I didn't expect was this sense that I had no idea who I was now because for such a long time I was the CEO of this, or I was the entrepreneur that does that. And all of a sudden, when that goes away, you don't have an identity anymore. And you start to have to think about, well, who am I now? What does it mean to be me? And that's a, that's a very difficult void to, to fill. It's a very difficult kind of chasm to cross, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the really difficult bit to get over, is knowing what your purpose is and who you are as an individual when your career's been, been, been taken away. And I guess on the... The, the kind of healthy behavior that developed in me was never looking at work as being the first thing you talk about. So, you know, we'll all go to kind of parties or net or events or whatever. And usually if I say to someone, oh, so tell me about yourself. The 
without, with very few exceptions, the tell me about yourself is I do this mm. or I have this or my business is this. But think about that answer for a second. Think about what we're saying about ourselves. We're just saying that what we do is who we are. And that, again, is a very likely contributor to imposter syndrome. Because what a weird thing to define ourselves by. Yeah. And if you define yourself by something as artificial as business, naturally you're not going to feel your kind of, I guess, whole self in that situation. Yeah, particularly as the business landscape can be, as you have experienced, quicksand. And it can get pulled out of underneath you at a moment's notice. And if you don't have a good answer to that question beyond what you do for a living that you feel comfortable saying, then you need to work on it because that's the really important bit to give yourself resilience, which is, you know, I am a worthy person, a good person, a happy person, a fulfilled person, irrespective of what I may or may not do for a living. Can we explore a little bit further about how you got to that point? Because that wouldn't have been an easy journey from the time that the first company failed so yeah. could you share with us a little bit about so, how you did it because I think that's probably the thing yeah. that the listeners would want to hear so the, the, if they're experiencing it how do they move out of that it's one of those odd things where I'm happy to talk about it but I know for a lot of people it would make a difference because it's difficult to go to to feel the compulsion to to make change until you've been through the bad bit so in mm. this situation it was it was very much the case that I was broken I, I got broken by a situation and I had no option but to rebuild. You know, when you're at a point where the only remaining option is to end your own life, at that point, there's only really two ways of going, right? Mm. Either I wasn't going to be here today or something had to change. You can't continue. And the something had to change component of it was just a complete rebuild of life. It was, it was a complete re... It was, it was basically getting to know myself again. And getting and trying things and, you know, trying an instrument. Oh, I don't like playing that. Okay, fine. Trying painting. What, in, oh, what I, instrument did you try? I tried lots. And I ended up with like piano and guitar, which I kind of enjoyed. I mean, I, 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 I think to say that I play them is doing a disservice to the word play. I just tinker. <laughs> um, but you had to try things to figure mm. out what works and what doesn't. And again, it's one of those weird things which I find really depressing is, you know, you, you meet loads of startups and all they read is business books. I've not met anyone successful who just reads business books because the real life experience and the real things that give you the insights into how to run your life and how to succeed aren't from business books. They're from everything else. Yeah. The most successful entrepreneurs that I've met in life are people who go and experience things and look at the bookshelf behind their desk and it's music and sports and history and art and all these things. It's not business books because they know who they are outside the job they do and they know what their purpose in life is. And so you have to really actively discover that. You have to try things. You have to go and go on a course that you may or may not enjoy. Read things you may not want to read. Go to a concert that maybe you've never heard of who it is. Because how do you know what you like, like, don't like and who unless you, are. you try? And that helps dispel that, you know, because you're building then that knowledge and, um, you know, passions within you. So it obviously then helps quell those so feelings of imposter syndrome when they sort yeah. of try to get a grip off you. Yeah, and then the, the other side of it is realising some of these kind of founding myths of entrepreneurship because we, we're still bombarded by this kind of 
awful, unhealthy discussion around the hustle, which is, yes, I have to be up at five and I'm going to post on my Instagram that I was in the gym at 5am and then, look, I'm still in the office at midnight and, you know, I went to 19 meetings today and look, I've got inbox zero and I've got this floating avocado above my desk, whatever it is. But that's imposter syndrome. No, but the point is... You know, they feel compelled to do that. They feel compelled to say that and they feel compelled to join this destructive cult within Mm. entrepreneurship that says that that's okay Mm. when it isn't because guess what if you're not healthy and you're not rested you're less resilient if you're not looking after your emotional well-being outside your work you're not resilient if you're not looking after your family life your friends your partner your pets whatever it is if you're not doing all of that well you are not resilient and if you are not resilient you will not be able to deal with the challenges of imposter syndrome when it occurs amongst the other gamut of stresses and strains Mm. of running a business we talked about earlier about um, imposter syndrome in the boardroom. Yeah. And I want to go back to that a little bit because it got me thinking about um, the, the progression of leaders and sort of um, what leaders should embody when they um, are trying to inspire others. And I think imposter syndrome has a positive place to play there. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think about um, sort of some of the sort of the best leaders that sort of come to mind for me I think about the ones that are always open to learning and always listening to to others as well as sort of those all the other cambit of uh, leadership skills Mm -hmm. that they have and I think imposter syndrome has a part to play there because it's that going back to awareness and um, you know open-mindedness is really those things that it can it can mean for you right it's strange because humility and imposter syndrome are kind of odd bedfellows, right? Because imposter syndrome is a problem if your expectation is there. But if you bring, if you take the expectation away, then imposter syndrome doesn't matter, right? Because how can you be an imposter in a, in a situation where there's no expectation? And, and that's, that's that missing ingredient. So the cure for imposter syndrome is not to be on the hustle. It's to be more humble in every given situation, i.e. Mm. you're in the boardroom, you deserve to be there, but only a result of the fact that, you know, you're a human being. There's no expectation. It's okay for you to fail. It's okay for you to not know. It's okay for you to ask questions. That, that's, that's approaching a situation with humility. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've been on panels and, you know, big, high-profile, swanky events where you get asked a question and you say, I don't know. I, I literally don't know. And that's fine. Because that's, that's the antidote to this. Yeah. And in the boardroom and in terms of developing leadership qualities, this is something which, so for example, when I'm, when I'm working with MBA students, it's really hard to train that into them. It's really hard to train, first of all, a sense of admitting, I don't know, or saying, can you tell me about this? Or can I learn about this? Or mm. can you teach me this? You know, for example, you might have a business in marketing or you might feel that marketing is your thing so as a result of that it's difficult for you to sit down with someone who maybe you would perceive as your junior and go can you just teach me about this i don't know about this i want to learn more Mm. because you're humbling yourself in their presence which is not something we're we're kind of wired to do but the the other side of it is um if you once you realize that by removing imposter syndrome it opens up curiosity because it suddenly means that nothing is beyond you reading about it because maybe you'll learn something 
you know, I, I've, I've seen people who actively avoid maybe reading a marketing textbook. So I, I know marketing, I've run a business for such a long time. Well, who knows? Maybe you'll learn something, you know, yeah. give it a go. So, so th- that's the leadership quality is it's, it's humility as a kind of high level quality, which then manifests in curiosity and in interest in other people and mm. more interest in other people than yourself, which is surprisingly rare in CEOs, unfortunately. Um, but the best CEOs that I've met over the years, are the ones who really succeed are, they're the ones who assume I'm boring. I want to know about you. So do you think then the problem isn't actually imposter syndrome itself? It's our reaction to it. Imposter's- when we feel those feelings because of external perceptions and you know how people are expected to be. You know, so as an entrepreneur, you're expected to be the person that knows everything about every aspect of your business. As a CEO, you're expected to yeah. you know, know everything about everything that's happening in your I'll, business. I'll put, it to, I mean? I'll put it to you this way. If... if you know, before the age of, of kind of, and I'll come back to the medicine, medical example, but if you get before the age of modern medicine, you know, if, if somebody used to get it's like a splodge on your skin, they'd be like, right, we're going to just treat this weird splodge on your skin. It keeps coming back. We'll just treat it again. But th- we didn't know it was skin cancer. Hmm. We didn't know that there was a systemic cancer in your body that was causing that splodge on your skin. To talk about imposter syndrome in isolation is to talk about the splodge on the skin. Yeah. We're not talking about the thing that causes it, right? We're not talking about all these other factors in life, in business, in business culture, in the culture of our nation and our world and all these things which contribute to that splodge, which in this discussion is imposter syndrome, in other discussions might be entrepreneurial stress. Yeah. So we have to look at this as just one symptom of the wider challenges facing entrepreneurs so it's a it's a branding issue (laughs) it's definitely a branding issue well it's not do you know it's some of it is just it 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 takes it takes a brave set of discussions to break the cycle so there's a whole industry set up around making entrepreneurship sound difficult because if it didn't sound difficult you couldn't sell your book (laughs) If you didn't make entrepreneurship sound hard, <laughs> you couldn't sell your seminar. You yeah. couldn't sell your consulting service. Yeah. Because why would you subscribe to that very expensive leadership program if you mm. thought it, entrepreneurship was easy? So there's a whole generation of individuals who, a whole segment of individuals rather, who profit from this in the same way and in just as toxic a way as the beauty industry says, that particular form of blemish is bad, so you need to use this, or wrinkles aren't normal, so you should do this. It's the same level of psychologically damaging crap that people inflict on this generation of entrepreneurs by making entrepreneurship sound complex, by creating an environment of expectation, by taking that kind of very Gary V-esque sense of hustle and pressure and the picture outside the private jet and this kind of thing. It's the same level of toxicity which we need to fight with the same level of vigor as we fight the beauty brands who for decades have been shaming people into buying their products because it's the same mode of action. So how do we combat it? How do we break that cycle? By cutting off their oxygen the same way that we cut off oxygen in so many industries, we don't buy it. So stop buying into the 
If people stop listening to the toxic speakers, not this audience, podcast. Keep listening to this. <laughs> yeah, present present podcast excluded, of course. Um, if people stop liking and sharing, you know, far right wing extremist content, it carries no weight, mm. right? If people stop engaging with hate speech, it no longer has an impact in society. If people stop liking and sharing the toxic content or feeling the need to be a part of that discussion. Yeah. You know, how many entrepreneurs do we all know who now feel obliged to do like a, a morning podcast to their three Instagram followers and things like that? <laughs> it's, it's, it's utterly toxic it's yeah. it's a pathology i know it's, we're laughing but it's a very serious yeah point. it's a real pathology it's really damaging it's really really bad mm. and we have to cut off the oxygen supply to these behaviors in the same way that we do when we're fighting you know the beauty industry or any other industry like tobacco and what about on a more personal level so that's something they can do to cut themselves off from it, being exposed to mm-hmm. those messages but you know, we're, we're all, for, we're all for, for much further down the line. It's already in us. Uh, 75% of us already have it. So what can we be doing as individuals? Fill your, your life, sort of- fill your life with things that are interesting that don't need you to be part of that. Mm. Like, let me ask you a question. So our illustrious presenter, Trish. <laughs> I hope this isn't going to be about pens. <laughs> okay, besides your purple pen, which I know you are utterly obsessed with, what else are you interested in life? Oh God, loads of things. So I know you're interested in running. I know you like... I don't know if I'd use the word interested. I do. (laughs) Do you like travel? Yes, yes. Do you like music? Do you like art? Do you like... What do you like? Yeah, so I guess I'm probably one of those people that um, like to say uh, that I like to try new things. And so, um, yeah, if opportunities come up, I'll I'll say yes to them. Okay. You know, so imagine a situation. Snow triathlons and whatever. Okay, so imagine China walls. So imagine a situation where, for every one business account you followed, you followed ten other accounts from an ultra marathon runner, an artist, a musician, mm. an author, things like that. Very quickly, ninety percent of the things you see on your social media when you log on will not be part of that discussion. Yeah but they will still be interesting to you and they'll still be meaningful to you and they will still add value and color to your life. It's just, it's not that same conversation. Yeah. And you learn, you learn skills in those new places that you you can then... You you don't have to, is the other thing. There's this, you don't have to always be learning. That's part of that same narrative. Mm. Learning is important. I am a massive advocate for learning, but not every experience in your life has to be one of actively getting a certificate for something. I don't mean it in that sense. I mean, for example, um, you know, you think about um, sort of leadership skills yes. and things. So my brother runs uh, an outdoor pursuits and uh, sort of activity centre yes. back in Northern Ireland. And they do vast amounts of um, sort of leadership training, yeah. not just for businesses, but also for the Moor Mountain Rescue Team and, yeah. you know, people like that. Um, and, you know, it's it's taking those exercises and, and doing those things out in the mountains where you learn you know, yeah, exactly. Skills. So, so the, do you that, know what I mean? Not, so, not by I am going to learn this. Right, so, but so you that, just go and do it. Okay, so that's a formal. That's a formal manifestation of it. That's mm. a formal. I am going to go in this and do something a little bit unusual. And, mm-hmm. but, and as a result, yeah, as a side then, effect. Yeah, but then, but then the kind of more passive sense of just filling your life with interesting things doesn't require there to be an outcome. It doesn't like require. Cats. Yeah, it doesn't require you to have an objective for it. It's just there's a lot more interesting things around you, and mm. so your narrative becomes broader. Mm. 
And, and you don't get that same sense of fear of missing out because there was some event somewhere that you didn't get invited to or whatever. It's, it's, it's being a bit more active in, in how you fill your life with things combined with the occasional more formal exploration of that. Like I went on a painting course, I can't paint, <laughs> you know, things like that, which are more focused and more, you know, direct. Yeah. So I think we're moving into sort of the, to wrap up, I think you've given us some good advice there. So sort of surrounding yourself with uh, voices that are more interesting and different things that are outside of the mm. business sphere. What, what would other, are there any other tips or, or suggestions that you could um, finish up with us today to, to get people to think about? Look, look at the people around you and look at who are the people you, you choose to be around you and choose to be around, you know, choose to be around mm. and look at whether that's representative of, of the person that you are when you're not at work. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's not people from work, mm-hmm. but it's look, look at who they are and what you talk about and what you do together. And, you know, you, you, I've seen so many times where, you know, you, you have entrepreneurs and all they do is go to the fancy restaurants and do this and all their friends are fancy and rich and all whatever. And it's, it's like, what a shallow, pointless existence that is. There's no, there's no diversity there. You know, we, we are more powerful and more resilient because of the diversity we put into our lives, not because of what we remove from it. So I think the single most important way of, of, of not getting yourself into the situation where imposter syndrome is a problem is just to live a much more diverse, rich in a social, cultural sense, not financial sense, an interesting life. Because you can't be an imposter then because you're humbling yourself in front of the number of experiences you could possibly have. Mm. So it, it is really about that being humble, being open-minded, surrounding yourself with what you'd like to be Not more even, than beyond work. Just surrounding yourself with just people who you want to be around because of who they are, not what they do. You know, mm. I've, it, was only, it was only a couple of weeks ago I was with, you know, caught up with a couple of friends who I went to school with and, you know, they were like, oh yeah, I know this person. I know, oh yes, my friend does this, my friend does that. I'm like, okay, well, I don't <laughs> care. <laughs> so what? I mean, I'm very happy for them, but so what? If that's really all you can say, mm. you know, imagine, imagine this, and we've all got friends like this, where you might sit down with friends of yours who maybe are about to get married or whatever, and you go, so why are you guys together? And then you, you'll find there's kind of two camps here, where there's one camp where your friends go, well, we have all these shared interests and you know, we like to do this together and we went to the same school and our, pa- our parents know each other, whatever. And then you have another group of friends who just go, oh, we just love each other. Who would you rather be? We've touched a little bit about uh, culture there in terms of how, how people deal with this issue. And I'd like to look at the other side of the Atlantic because you spend quite a bit yeah. of time in America and lecture at uh, MIT, uh, no less. And I'm sure there's probably a whole piece about how you ended up uh, there, which, you know, quickly tell us. Yeah. And then could you share with us, what do the students there, what is their approach to these types of feelings and how do they deal with yeah. it in America? So, so the, the US context is really interesting. So I ended up teaching, teaching there ba- basically by accident, was speaking at a conference. And again, just, just that went rogue. It's, it's a whole different story. But the, the, the way that America deals with imposter syndrome is it seems to engineer it out by really celebrating success in a very, very much more um, wholehearted way. Mm. So classic example would be, you know, you're driving a sports car down the streets in the US and 
and, and again, it's a bit of a generalization, but just to illustrate the point, you're more likely to get somebody giving you a high five and going, how can I learn from you? What, what do you do? I want to have a car like that one day in a good job rather than here, which is you might get spat on or keyed. <laughs> and, and I'm, you know, and again, from experience, I've had both of those experiences. I've had the nice cars here and in the US, and this is, this is the difference. And that, that cultural humility of celebrating success and being willing to learn engineer out imposter syndrome. So you go to MIT and any, you know, one of those top US universities, it's a very different environment to anything you would have experienced because literally every single person that's a genius everyone you will be sat at lunch next to somebody who may have a nobel prize you just don't know Mm. but the point is in that situation there's this sense that we're all at the same level yeah we are all learning we are all learning from each other we are all part of this thing called mit and we are advancing knowledge and science and, and and the liberal arts um and that's very different to here where if the person you sat next to has a Nobel Prize, why haven't I got one? What, have I, what do I need to do to get one? Yeah. Or, if, oh, I don't, feel, I don't feel worthy to sit beside exactly, you because you've got... A, exactly. You're so much more intelligent than me. That, that's the really dangerous manifestation of it mm. rather than, you know, congratulations, Professor yeah. Chomsky, you have a Nobel Prize. That's amazing. Well, yeah. actually, actually, he doesn't, by example. Professor, <laughs> Professor Krugman, Krugman, you have a Nobel Prize. That's wonderful. Tell me about your research. What led to that? And being genuinely interested. interested. Inquisitive. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and that's such a major cultural difference to how we treat success in the UK in particular. And across Europe again, because so many European businesses are built around engineering and science and, and around that, you, you see a lot of European businesses growing bigger and doing better because of that. Do you think that's actually, if you can take it back um, actually into when you think about culture, how Britain has grown like over the centuries compared to America? So Britain is based on hierarchy and monarchy. So there's the haves and the have-nots from the very beginning, whereas America is the... I'm reading the Hillary Clinton book at the minute, and it's that kind of the republic and... You know how the aspirational of how they'll collectively all. I think. I think if we look look at the the biggest, you know, the biggest external factor in people's lives on a day to day basis is is the economy as opposed to government because mm. you know your your job is has a far more far greater impact on your day to day than than policy. So if we look at the economy, the way that our economy was built historically, we went from the land owning class where basically there was a small number of people who owned the land and everyone else was peasants through to the industrial class where we had a small group of people who owned industry and then everyone else worked in factories, suddenly into the knowledge economy, which asserts to be far more um, meritocracy-based. But in reality, there's still a small number of people who own everything and then a bunch of people trying to fight it out. Mm. So so, so the nature of what's happened hasn't really changed. And, And if you look at it really kind of frankly look at who owns the wealth in the economy versus the distribution of that wealth. There's far more wealthy people who've made money in business in places like Germany because a lot more of those businesses have been able to scale. Whereas here, there's a very small amount of big businesses and then just lots of other people 
scrambling to try and figure yeah. it out. So, so yeah, the structural nature of how our economy works does definitely contribute to it. I've really, really enjoyed this um, conversation this morning. And uh, thank you very much for your very honest and, and thoughts and candor uh, about your own personal experiences. Um, we hope for the listeners that if you have been struggling with any of these uh, issues that we've talked about today, that this has been some help and that, um, that tonight you'll get a much better night's sleep. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 